in your Bibles, if you'd open it, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In the next of the three talks, the other one, this one, and then the two tomorrow morning, I'm going to give you a rather unusual and frankly complex talks where I'm combining two different things at the same time, two different kinds of talks. I'm going to give topical talks on what is the gospel, what is evangelism, why evangelize. And I'm going to expound 2 Corinthians 3, 4 and 5 at the same time. It's not that these three chapters answer these three questions, but these three chapters will bring the data and the, the concepts into our discussion of these three questions. However, I'm more interested in telling you what's in 2 Corinthians 3, 4, 5 than I am in answering our questions, because that actually is what's important. That's God's word to us. And... How successful is the attempt to combine topical talks and expository talks at the same times? Well, we'll see by the end of tomorrow, and I've got an air ticket back to Sydney. <laughs> it's wonderful what you can say when you're this far from home. It's a great warning that there are people here who are on Facebook. We've got them at home too. Poor people. I, I've got something that they haven't got. It's called friends. <laughs> and they don't unfriend me or defriend me or whatever it might be. Yeah. You might like to ponder that possibility. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to understand your word now. Keep our minds clear, please, Father, and focus that we might concentrate on what you have to say to us. We do pray, Father, that you give us such understanding that we might live for the praise and glory of your Son, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Well, we're starting off then looking at 2 Corinthians 3 and the tail bit of chapter 2 and just into chapter 4 it's going to be with the question of what is the gospel. So let's start with the what is the gospel, or really start with what is a gospel. What does the word mean? The word comes from the word angel and means an announcer, a messenger, a message. Angels don't necessarily have wings and halos, uh, otherwise I couldn't entertain them unawares. Actually, if that bloke turned up with wings and a halo in my house, I think I'd notice but I'm going to entertain him unawares because the word angel doesn't necessarily mean a religious personage at all. It just means a messenger. Uh, messengers have messages. And this is an announcement. It's an important announcement. Great news of conquest or victory or enthronement. It, it can be personal news or it can be political news. But it brings joy to the hearer. Great joy. It means it's meant to be good news for the recipient. Though sometimes it's bad news. If you've just been conquered, that's not too good. If you conquered, well, that's good news. So when they come home and tell you, our side won, that's a gospel, and that's good news. When they come home and say, our side lost, that's a gospel, but it's bad news for you. It's connected to the word promise, because it, it, it means the, 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 the news will bring promise of the future. So when they say our side won, you say, great, we're heading towards the grand final. It has a promise for the future built into the message. It's more than information. The very telling of the news, excuse me, <coughs> the telling of the news changes the situation. It brings a new order to your life. So here's a personal gospel which I'll read to you from uh, oh, the ESV, which, by the way, some of the headings here are ESV headings. But here's a personal gospel from 1 Thessalonians 3. Now that Timothy has come to you from us, sorry, come to us from you, and has brought us the gospel of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us, you won't find any Bible translator uses the word gospel there, but it's the everyday Greek word for gospel there. I've just misread it. The ESV has good news. I don't know what the NIV has, but it won't have gospel. Because we don't think of the gospel of faith, of their faith. 
but it's any message which is good news, any message which is great news. And Timothy turning up was great news for Paul. He was very worried about the Thessalonians that they had been persecuted out of existence. Now, most references to gospel in the New Testament are of more public, big political pronouncements of kings and kingdoms, and especially the gospel of the kingdom of God. Let me ask you, what does September the 23rd mean to you? Has anybody got any great knowledge about September the 23rd? Important for anybody? Your dad's birthday. <laughs> As a dad, I appreciate that you remembered such an important date. Anybody else got something important to tell us about September the 23rd? <laughs> Your mum's birthday. Oh, good. Which year were they both... No, I won't go into that. <laughs> well, it was the birthday of the first emperor of Rome. Augustus Caesar lived from 63 BC through to 14 AD. But he ruled the Roman Empire for 41 years. That's a pretty impressive rule, isn't it? From 27 AD till his death in 14 AD, BC to his death in 14 AD. And he's the person who brought unity to the whole Roman Empire. Under him it stretched, remember, from the Middle East all the way across to Britain. At the height of his reign in 9 BC, the Greeks of Asia what we would call Turkey today, proclaimed a gospel. They called it because it was marking his birthday, September the 23rd. Here's something of what they said. It's a day which we may justly count as equivalent to the beginning of everything. If not in itself, in its own nature, at any rate, in the benefits it brings. A saviour for us and those who come after us, to make wars to cease, to create an order everywhere. And whereas the birthday of the god, Augustus, was the beginning of the world of glad tidings, that's of gospel, the beginning of the world of the gospel that has come to men through him. The proconsul of the province has devised a way of honouring Augustus, hitherto unknown to the Greeks, which is that the reckoning of time for the course of human history, should begin with his birth. This man's birth, you see, this man has brought world peace, unity, harmony, organisation to the whole of known humanity. And therefore, from now on, this man's birthday is going to be marked as the day upon which the world began. Everything will be before Augustus or in the reign of Augustus. Does that remind you of anybody? It's extraordinary, isn't it? The gospel of Augustus. And now we have the gospel of the Lord Jesus, before whom everything is BC and everything afterwards in the year of our Lord. We still have gospels about royal births. Sorry, Americans, you don't, but the rest of us uh, still do. <laughs> the Queen of England is the Queen of Australia, you know. And I love it when I'm preaching to English people because they always get upset when I have a shot at the royal family. And they say, well, I, you know. I say, it's our royal family, not just your royal family. In fact, we had a referendum and we voted for her. We want her. You, you just had her. There's nothing, you don't get a choice, you know. At least she knows she's loved down under. There's nowhere else. Anyway, there was a 41 cannon salute in Green Park and then two evangelists came out inside to the grounds of Buckingham Palace and pinned a gospel onto a little placard there that you could read through the grill, which said, Her Royal Highness, the Duchess of Cambridge, was safely delivered of a son at 4.24pm today. Her Royal Highness and her child are both doing well, and then it was signed by four witnesses to the truth of this fact. 
and then a 61-cannon salute went off over over the Thames. So here is a gospel message with a promise for the future. They now know who the next in order of line is. We've got the Queen Elizabeth, we've got Prince Charles, and then we're hoping for <laughs> Prince William, and then there is going to be Prince George. But the, the dynasty is secure for another generation, is what is being said. And it was a message that went around the world, even to people who don't like monarchs and the rest. And it, it was something that you blow cannons for. It's worth having a cannon shot or two. That's a gospel. But what is the gospel? Well, the word as a noun or verb is all over the New Testament, except, interestingly, John's gospel. And in different contexts, different wording is used as to the content of the gospel. But that there was a proclamation of a new age, of a new king, is quite clear throughout the whole New Testament. And this gospel is the gospel of God and the gospel of Christ. In both senses of the word, it's God's gospel about God. It's Christ's gospel about Christ. Not that there's two gospels, there's only one because there's only one God. It's not a human gospel, but God's gospel about God. It's Christ's gospel about Christ. And this one gospel is spoken and proclaimed throughout the New Testament. The gospel of God, the gospel of Christ is powerful because when the message goes, life changes. Wherever the message goes, life changes. Nothing is ever the same again once the gospel is proclaimed. And so let me just quickly skip through some of what the Bible teaches, the New Testament teaches about the gospel and its power. You see, it creates faith in Romans 1. It brings salvation and life in Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 15. It brings judgment in Romans 2. It reveals God's righteousness in Romans 1. It brings fulfilment of hope in Colossians 1. It intervenes in the lives of men and women and creates churches. It cannot be fettered by human chains in 2 Timothy 2. It produces new birth and regeneration and new life in 1 Peter 1. It brings peace in Ephesians 2 and 6. It draws together those who are near and those who are far into one church. The Gentiles and the Jews are united in it in Ephesians 3. It gives salvation in Ephesians 1. It has brought life and immortality to light in 1 Timothy 1. And to tell you the truth, I got tired of thinking about it. There were other things that were there, but I thought by this end of this list, if you haven't got the message now, you're not going to get it, are you? <laughs> this is not just... By the way, fish and chips cost $5 in Sydney. A piece of information of no significance to anybody of any... This is a piece of information that changes life when it comes. And we see the power of the gospel in 2 Corinthians 3. So let me remind you of the context. There's a troubled relationship between Paul and the Corinthians... And it's resolved with thanks to God. I'm picking up 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I didn't find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are a smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity like men sent from God. Did you follow that reading? Was it just I read badly or is it a little confusing? You see, there at verse 13, he has no peace of mind. And then suddenly at verse 14, he bursts forth with thanksgiving to God. That's because of what happened between verse 12 and verse Verse 13 and verse 14. What happened? Well, you'll find it over in chapter 7, verse 5. Chapter 7, verse 5. 
For when we, for when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us with the coming by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the, the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Go back and look at chapter 2. You see in chapter 2, verse 12, I was in Troas preaching the gospel. I had no peace. Why? Because Titus hadn't turned up. He was due to meet Titus in Troas. Titus didn't turn up. Although the gospel opportunities were there, he was looking for Titus. So he went on to Macedonia. When he went to Macedonia, Titus turned up and said, the Corinthians love you. So his anxiety, his worry, his concern, his was, was overwhelmed by joy. And so he thanks God for the way in which God has continued to lead him on. But the image he uses is that of a triumphal procession. The conquering general of the Roman Empire would lead his troops through the streets as, well, we don't have anything like this in Australia because we don't actually ever win in it. But we win in the we win at sport. And when you win at sport in Australia, they take you back and we run ticker tape parades through the main streets. And so everybody comes out and cheers the athletes. Well, we don't care, it's a half an hour of work anyway. And we scatter paper all across the streets, which gives more work to other people to fix up later. <laughs> and I hope it's not a windy day because you want the paper to hit the ground and you don't want it blowing into the harbour. But we do it because we're saying our people are wonderful, aren't they? But the Romans... They were saying, we're wonderful, aren't we? For they led their captives through the town and their booty as they travelled through each town on the way back to Rome, demonstrating their power, demonstrating their victory, warning you not to rebel against Rome, displaying their might and their power in pomp and splendour, humiliating the defeated and making that powerful, strong political point that anyone who wants to revolt against Rome will one day be in chains behind me. So with music and with banners and the triumphal procession would proceed with the captives, the new slaves of the victor, strewing incense as they went on their way. That's the image he now turns to. That's what God's doing to us. He's leading us on. And we are like the fragrance coming from the procession to those who are perishing with a stench of death. But to those who are being saved, why, we're the sweet fragrance of life. And that was like it was with the Romans. If you were against the Romans and you saw one of these processions, it was an awful stench of death in your nostrils. But if you were on the Roman side and you saw the procession, you beauty, marvellous, wonderful, we've won. Look at that, we've got peace. And we're in charge, which is the best way to have peace. It's a striking analogy that Paul uses to explain his life. God is leading him as a new slave of Christ. In the Christian procession, God is leading his people in victory. The battle won by God with Christ's death and resurrection, proclaiming to the world by this procession the victory that is ours in Christ Jesus. But we, we're like the slaves wafting out the incense of the victory of Christ. As the news of his conquest spreads across the world in us and in our message. And we don't look all that impressive because we're part of the victor's trophies. But we're sounding out the message of the great king, the gospel of Christ. The aroma, the saved and the perishing sea and smell. And so who is sufficient for these things? Point three on the outline, which if I was doing it on the NIV, would be called who is equal to such things. And so I'm reading from verse, where is it, 16 there. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? Who is equal to such a task? Who's competent for such a task? Who is going about to bring the gospel of life and death to people. The answer you'd expect 
in all humility is to say, well, I'm not really competent. I really, I'm, I'm not any good at doing that. And you might expect not only to hear that answer, you might expect to give that answer. Sometimes out of false humility, oftentimes out of true humility. How could I possibly be making a world change like that? But Paul says, I'm competent for the task. Look down at chapter 3, verse 4. Such confidence as is this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we're competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. He has made us competent to be the ministers of a new covenant. And so the new covenant and the old covenant, the New Testament and Old Testament, if you prefer the Latin words, is contrasted here. The contrast between the two covenants of the Bible, a profound contrast because, as we've just read in verse 6, the spirit gives life. The letter of the law kills. So look at the contrast that we have here. I pick it back in verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He's made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters of stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory that which lasts, that which lasts? Here's the profound contrast between them. Look at the contrast back at verse 3. Not written with ink, but with a spirit. Not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. Look at the contrasting glory in verses 7 and 8. Letters on stone came with glory, but the ministry of the Spirit comes with much, much more glory. Because in verse 9... Moses' ministry is a ministry of condemnation. But Jesus' ministry is a ministry of righteousness. And so in verses 10 and 11, we see that Moses' ministry is transitory, overwhelmed by the glory of Jesus, while Jesus' ministry is permanent. I mean, they are both glorious, these two covenants, but one is the more glorious covenant over the other. In fact, so much more glorious that the glory of the old can't compete with it and has come to an end. The glory of Jesus doesn't compare with the glory of Moses. It contrasts with the glory of Moses. It so far outshines Moses as not to be compared. I like the illustration of the moon and the sun. When there's no moon on a country road, the night is very dark. But on a full moon night, the moon shines so bright that you can see not only where you're going, but you can even read the map. Yet the moon's light is only ever a reflection of the sun's light. And when the sun comes out in all its brightness, the moon fades away. You can still see it sometimes up in the sky, can't you, in the middle of the day? But you don't see any light coming from it 
that makes the slightest difference to you. It just looks a, a veiled, pale kind of white globe up there of no importance. That which she, the night before was the only light you had to see your way. So it is with Moses and the Lord. When we lived in the darkness of the night before the Lord Jesus Christ came, before the Saviour of the world has arrived, Moses was the brightest light humanity had, showing us God and, and God's life and how to live God's way. But once the sun came, the sunshine of the Son of God so overwhelmed the moon of Moses and its light you can hardly see it. You have to look for it. However, friends, if you don't know your Old Testament, if you've failed ever to see how glorious Moses was, you may not realise how much more glorious Jesus is. Remember the Mount of Transfiguration there? Jesus appeared transfigured in his glory. Beside him is Moses on one side, Elijah on the other, the two greatest of the Old Testament prophets. There they were all in glory. And the voice from heaven came which said, This is my beloved son. Listen to Moses. That wasn't the message, was it? Any more than listen to Elijah. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then the two disappeared from sight. See, in the presence of the two greatest prophets in glory, it's Jesus who outshines them all. But there's even more. For now we have the Jesus letters. You may not have realised that Jesus wrote letters. You've got the apostles' letters here. But what about Jesus' letters? He preached, he died, he rose... He did miracles, he walked on water, but did he ever write a letter? The answer is yes, he did. Not the normal letters written on paper and put in envelopes, nor the electronic letters in our computers, but the spiritual letters of changed hearts, of hearts moved to obey God's law. Moses' message for, was for the people, but hidden from them. He put a veil over his face because of their fear. They put a veil over their hearts, not wanting to hear what Moses was saying, what God was saying through Moses. But Jesus writes letters on our hearts, opening our hearts and our minds to hear, to receive, to respond in joyful obedience to whatever God wants to say. For the gospel is not an external imposition of rules and regulations, but an internal transformation of the person that makes a radical difference. The difference the spirit of Jesus makes is not putting new clothes on an old person, but putting new person inside the clothes. Thus, with unveiled freedom, for while Jesus the Jews still read Moses, they still do to this day. They always read Moses with a veil over their face and over their hearts and over their minds. It was only Moses when he turned from the people and went in to the Lord to hear his voice. Only then did he remove the veil. And so in verse 16 we read, When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. I pick up from verse 12. Therefore... Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses who put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and when the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness 
with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. When anybody turns to the Lord and finds in his death forgiveness of our sins and in his resurrection new life, the veil is removed. The law of God is no longer condemning us. The law of God is no longer something forbidding and fearful. The law of God no longer brings death. The law of God becomes, as the psalmist knows it, reviving the soul, making wise the simple, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes, more to be desired than gold, sweeter than the honey. What is it that turns the law that condemns into the law that revives? Why, it is the Spirit of God written by the Lord Jesus Christ on our hearts. It's the same law. But when you are guilty of sin, the law is dreadful. You don't want to hear it. You don't want to meet with God. You don't want to have anything to do with God and his word. You know you're condemned. You know you're guilty. And being told about it only makes it worse. But when you meet the Saviour and find that he's died for your sins and risen to give you a new life, when he writes on your heart by the Spirit the new birth, then as you look in the law of God, you find the mind of God and the word of God and the purposes of life, the whole of your attitude towards God and towards his word is transformed. And that transformation is the great spiritual transformation that you and I can do for others by the preaching of the gospel. That's an extraordinary thing. This is more powerful than any powerful politician in the world. When you migrate to Australia, you will discover <laughs> that we have some of the most complex, extraordinary tax laws in the universe. The volumes of the tax law go on and on and on and on. It is a major enterprise to read and understand the tax law of Australia. Why? Well, because no Australian wants to pay tax. <laughs> so every treasurer, when he comes to power, increases the tax laws to close the loopholes that were found during the previous treasurer's regime. And so they are endlessly closing loopholes. But that's all right. We clever citizens, we have invented a whole way of putting the cleverest people in the land into university to make them tax consultants. And they, they invent new ways to get around the tax. <laughs> new ways to minimise tax. And if they're very, very naughty, new ways of avoiding tax. <laughs> But that's naughty. They shouldn't do that. But they do. And so then the next treasurer comes along and he invents more ways of closing up more loopholes. And so another volume and another volume and another volume is there. Because no one in Australia wants to pay tax. That's the reason. What would happen if for some magical power was given to the treasurer whereby he could give some kind of edict that would so grab the heart of Australians that they said, we want to pay tax. <laughs> We'd love to pay tax. How much would you like us to pay? <laughs> the whole tax law would be thrown out, I would say the window, except there's no window that big, but it would be thrown out. And the new treasurer would be able to say, pay whatever is needed. And the people would say, certainly, sir, and write their cheque. You think that's absurd? Can you imagine how when treasurers hear this talk, I hope the treasurer is listening, when the treasurers <laughs> hear this talk, they'd say, I'd like that power. That would be worth having. That would save me a lot of problems. That would save our country a lot of problems. He would put a whole bunch of tax consultants out of business. 
But that's all right. They're the cleverest people around. They'll find another job. <laughs> I'm not worried about them. And our country would be wealthy. And if only I could change human hearts to make them want to do the law. That's what we're talking about. The new covenant writes on our hearts the desire to do the law of God. And as we proclaim the edict of God, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, so God by his spirit changes human hearts to want to be God's people, to want to pay their tax. For when we turn to the Lord, we turn to the Lord Jesus, who by his spirit now rules the world today. For the Lord is the spirit and the spirit of the Lord gives us freedom. Freedom from death, freedom from condemnation, freedom to live, freedom of righteousness, freedom from fear, from fear of God and his word, from fear of death and condemnation. The people of Israel were afraid of God. They didn't want to hear the word of God. That's why the veil was there. They begged with Moses not to tell them anymore. But we have the freedom to listen, the freedom to know God as our Father and to be bold and confident to come into his presence and make our requests known to him, the joy that we can have in him. We have the freedom to be changed and to be changing. For as we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, as we see him in his glory, as we see who was him who was full of grace and truth, as we see him who is the word of God, the lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world, as we see the son of man sitting at the right hand of God in all power and authority in the clouds of heaven, as we see the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth who loved us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests with his God and Father, as we see Jesus in his glory, in his kingdom, in his power and his authority, we are changed and are being changed. Transformed is the word in verse 19, uh, verse 18. Metamorphosed is the Greek word. The change in form uh, from, from the grub to the butterfly. Still the same creature, unrecognisable. From the tadpole to the frog, same creature, unrecognisable. But yet, if you know, tadpoles turn into frogs, we are that. We are that transformed creatures, not what we were. So big is the change. It's talked about being born again. Such is the nature of that transformation as we're changed into the image to become like Christ in all his glory. And this change is a gradual change as well. It doesn't finish in this lifetime. Only when Jesus returns will we be fully transformed into the image of his glorious resurrection body. But for now, we are changed and are being changed from one degree of glory to another, in the slow and steady alteration to become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the Spirit who is at work within us bringing about this change as gradually his fruit is shown. The work of the Spirit is really about our conversion, our regeneration. Is really about teaching us that Jesus is Lord and God is our Father. Is really about leading us away from sin and to holiness. Is really about the fruit that He produces in our lives. It's not about the gifts. In fact, the phrase gift of the Spirit hardly occurs in the New Testament. The only one place it occurs, you don't know where it is, because it's not where it's one where it's expecting it to be. It's in Romans 1, which is not where you're expecting it to be. You, you think it's going to be 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, but it's not there. The gifts of the Spirit, in fact, 
The same gift of the Spirit is the gift of the Son in Ephesians 4 and the gift of God the Father in Romans 12. So why do you think it's the work of the Spirit? When the Father gives, the Son gives, and the Spirit gives exactly the same gift, I'd say it's the gift of God rather than... The work of the Spirit's not about gifts. You've been conned, my friends, by a group which we won't name because we all know who we're talking about. You've been conned. You must read your Bibles carefully here. That's not the work. The work of the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit. That's what the Spirit wants. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. That's the work of the Spirit in the life of the Christian. He makes us Christian by giving us new birth, which opens our heart to God and God's word and slowly transforms us more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ by the fruit that he gives to us of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And so we become more and more like Jesus because of the Spirit of God. Now that's being a minister of the new covenant. The minister of the old covenant could just tell you, you're doing the wrong thing and you're going to go to hell. That's their message. That's the message they could give. Stop doing what you're doing because you're doing the wrong thing. This is what God says you should do. That's what you're doing. The minister of the new covenant is saying, not only are you going to hell, but Jesus has gone to hell for you. You can be saved. You can be changed. You can be transformed. You can become the child of God and live with Christ in glory forever. Here is the message. Forgiveness and pardon and new birth and new life. This is the message we give. And as the message goes out, people hear it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. It's the dynamic, powerful announcement that changes the hearer. My Christian friends, did it not change you? And are you so special or is it so special? It's so special, isn't it? It is the power of God. And now it is in your mouth to share with others that they too can be transformed. It's not just in the mouth of your minister. It's in your mouth. If it's in your heart, it's in your mouth to share it with others. That they may... Who is competent for such... Who is sufficient for such a work? None of us. Except by God's competency by God's way. And so therefore, in chapter 4, he starts, therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we don't lose heart. Rather, we've renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's Veil to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we don't preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You see, if your gospel, if your ministry is this powerful word of God that transforms hearts, then you don't lose heart. Hey, not everybody gets changed. Not everybody gets converted. Not everybody is saved, but you don't lose heart. The God of this world's blinding their minds and their hearts from understanding it. But we know the power of God that is at work in the gospel. We know what transformation God does. So therefore, we don't use underhanded methods. We don't need to. You don't need to make the story better than it is. You don't have to tell lies. You don't have to make promises that are untrue. 
You don't have to use flattery. They don't work anyway, and they're not right to do it. It's, it's the old Spurgeon story, isn't it, about they don't work? Isn't it Spurgeon where somebody challenged him and said, I saw one of your converts drunk in the gutter the other day? And Mr Spurgeon said, yes, it must have been one of my converts because if it was the Lord, he would have been sober. <laughs> is, is that a Spurgeon story? If it's not, it should be. Yeah, we'll, we'll declare it as a Spurgeon story tonight. <laughs> you see, you don't have to use clever underhand because they don't work. Anybody you convert won't be converted. Anybody the Spirit converts is converted. So therefore we don't need to use any underhanded trickery. It won't work. There's no need to. And the power lies in the truth of the gospel, not in clever, shonky techniques. That's not what it's about, friends. It's just about telling the truth. Just explaining, announcing the message to people. Because the message we're announcing is the transforming power of God at work. And so though our gospel is veiled, not everybody gets converted, you don't give up, that doesn't matter. God is at work. He's at work in what we're doing. If I'm the stench of death to somebody, I'm really sad for them. But it doesn't surprise me about me, I'm pretty smelly. You know, I'm one of God's people, God's people stink. Come and join us. <laughs> because while it's a stench of death to some, others will say that's life itself. And so we just go on being smelly. That's our job. The consequence is God's work in the lives of different people. So we don't lose heart by the lack of results, nor, though it's not said here, do we get pride out of the success of results? Because that's just the flip side of the same problem, isn't it? In fact, I was taught by John Chapman, actually, never to count the numbers of conversions, and if I am told, never to repeat them. If anybody says to me, how many people were converted at the evangelistic rally tonight? The answer is, I met a very interesting young man. He didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, and he came tonight, and I think he's been saved. The numbers are an irrelevance. The person matters. That, that's what it's about, isn't it? And so Chapo always taught me, never answer the question on statistics. Not because they're bad, not because they're good. It's an irrelevance, you'll see, the statistics. What's really important is the person whose life has been totally transformed by the Spirit of God, and that happens as the gospel is preached. And so we don't lose heart. God's working his purposes out through the gospel, for the salvation of people. So what is the gospel? Well, you see it there in chapter 4, in verses 4 to 6, you see, where he talks about the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ in the, who's in the image of God. For God says, let light shine out of darkness, shine in our hearts. But what is it? Well, it's there in verse 5 in particular. Let me go back to the NIV to see how they say it. For we do not preach ourselves, that's not the gospel, it's not about us, but we preach Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. When you preach Jesus Christ as Lord, then you're shining forth the light of the glory of Christ in the image of God. You're shining forth not yourself but Jesus and ourselves as your servants, your slaves, for Jesus' sake. And that will bring people into the knowledge of God when they see the face of Jesus. So I just need to tell people about Jesus. That's what I need to do. And God's Spirit will change them. It's fantastically simple and wonderful and marvellous and who could do such a thing? The answer is God's people, that's who. He'll make us competent to do it. So, I am now ready to do what my master here has told me to do, answer his questions. But I'm going to close in prayer first, am I, in what I've just said? That gives you time to think up your question. I'll make it a long prayer, a short one.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you and praise you, Father, for he is so, so great, beyond all our expectations, Father. And we thank you that you have entrusted with us the message of Jesus, that we might make him known. And, Father, that as we make him known by our words, that you make him known into the very hearts of people, changing them and transforming them, regenerating them, so that they too see Jesus for who he really is, the Christ, our Lord. And, Father, in turning them to your Son, you bring such change, the change that you brought to our lives, but you bring it to others, Father, transforming them from one degree of glory to another, transforming them into the image and likeness of your Son. Father, that you would use us to bring about such a miraculous transformation in other people. That blows our minds, Father. We don't deserve your salvation. We don't deserve the privilege of changing other people. We cannot do either by ourselves. But it astonishes us, Father, that we can do either through you, that we could be saved because you, you sent your son to die and rise for us, and that we can be used by you to bring about salvation in other people. Father, it is just so great and is so wonderful. And we beg, Father, that you would be with us. Help us to understand this and have confidence in you and your work and what's taking place, that we may not shy away from the joy you have given to us to be part of your plans and purposes in this world for the salvation of people and the glory of your Son. And so we pray for your help and your blessing upon us in our endeavours in Jesus' name. Amen.